Good morning. I'd like to take this moment to uh, welcome our visitors. It's so good to have you all here with us. The, you all who have visited with us before and are, are back again, it is always an encouragement to see you. Uh, I pray that as we open our Bibles today and, and, and dig into God's Word, that what we will find uh, there is, is truth that we have hearts tuned to, hearts that are uh, seeking to, to learn from, uh, because we have been looking over the past couple of weeks at some problems that have arisen uh, primarily when people have turned their hearts away from that truth, when people have turned to their own decisions, their own, uh, the, their own forms of truth and their, their own authority in their lives. A couple weeks ago, I talked about a problem that was been around for, since time began, but a problem that has really become evident in the United States in this issue of uh, expressive individualism. I talked about how our culture has abandoned the idea of an absolute authority. Our culture has abandoned the idea of an absolute truth and has rather embraced relativism, which says truth and, and authority and knowledge is, is primarily based off of context and off of culture. What may have been true for one society is not necessarily true for mine. And what that has led is to the, the mentality that I can, I can decide for myself what is true and I can be what I want to be and do what I want to do. In fact, the most valuable asset that I have in this life is my own identity and my true Self. We talked about how that was never really God's plan. That from the beginning, He made man in His image and He gave them a, a truth. He gave them righteousness, but man chose to decide right from wrong for themselves in eating from the tree of knowledge and from then on have progressively led further and further away from God. So I want to continue that look this morning at another problem that we have today that affects the church. A problem that affects our efforts to reach those who are lost as well. The, one that, the problem that I want to talk about was a term that was first coined in the 1870s. Uh, and that term is pragmatism. Pragmatism. In the 1870s, the term pragmatism is coined and it began to be used in philosophy. Now what I want us to realize as we think about this word for a minute is this is not inherently a religious word. Oftentimes, it seems to be the case when things creep into the church and cause all sorts of problems, as we trace them back, we find out they never really started in religion. They didn't start in from, from God's Word uh, for certain. They didn't even start in a religious context. They started in the world and influenced the church. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about this morning. Pragmatism began um, in philosophy, and it was coined by a couple of noted men. Uh, as we get into this, I want to uh, we'll look at some of the quotes from some of these guys. But the first guy we talk about is William James, and the second one is going to be John Dewey. Uh, now, if you're like me, as, as we get to this point in the sermon right now, even as I was preparing for this, if you're like me, you have just realized that I've probably talked about two guys that you have no idea who they are, and I've used a word that you plan to never ever use in a sentence in your life. That is me as I got ready for this. And, and I, what I want us to do is I want us to hang on a minute uh, and, and really dig into this because we need to know this problem. We need to know where it comes from. We need to know the background of it. We need to understand where this started so we can figure out where we left the truth, where the truth was abandoned, and what is the, the answer to getting back to biblical truth in problems such as this. So pragmatism... Uh, this idea that, that began in the 70s, these philosophers using this term, they, uh, they are going to say that pragmatism is the belief that meaning, truth, and value are determined by practical consequences. Now this is this guy up here, William James. This is his quote. Pragmatism, the, the, the phrase that he has coined, is the meaning... Uh, or is the belief that meaning and knowledge is, is determined by things that are practical and their consequences. He came up with this thought because he was trying to justify two opposing thoughts, and that is uh, rationalism and empiricism. He says, basically what he says is this, science is too hard-headed, and, and we can't understand everything that science comes up with, and so there has to be another way to see it, but religion is too tender-hearted. And so how do I navigate these two views? Well, I'll just create a new one. 
pragmatism. Pragmatism says it doesn't have to go with everything that science says. It doesn't have to go with everything that religion says. It goes with what works in our world. That is the idea of pragmatism. Now, this man that said this, William James, he goes on to create and become the father of what is now modern-day psychology. That is, who we're, that is who's coming up with this. He, he, he does a great deal of thinking on how people think and how to handle and work with that. And so this is where this, this idea originates with, and this is what it originally says. And, and I know that that's a very technical sort of way of describing that. And even as I read this over and over again, I thought, what exactly does that mean? Truth and value determine my practical consequences. So let me give you an example of pragmatic philosophy in action. And again, I want us to remember, pragmatic philosophy, pragmatism, is not inherently a religious thing. And so this example is not going to come from the church at all. The example is you go to a doctor. Let's say you're sick. I mean, that is something that is going around right now. We can also think of a time when we were sick. I'm sick. I go to the doctor. The doctor says, here is some medicine. Go home and take it. I want you to take it three times a day. You go home. You take it three times a day. You follow the instructions they give you, and you don't get any better. You say, the medicine did not work. Didn't work. That is pragmatism. You look at the, you look at the end, goal, end uh, of the process, what happened, and you determine whether something is true or not. Let's say the medicine did work, and you say, the medicine healed me. That is, again, pragmatism. Pragmatism just says, I look at the results and make up my mind whether something is true or false. That is what's happening with this, with this philosophy. It is, um, again, it is, that, it is that belief that these things, that, that, that the end goal determines the truth. And so William James is going to go on to say that he believes that ideas and belief systems have only value whenever they tend to work. And I'm going to use that word in quotations here for a minute. When they work, because I'm going to add on there, whenever he decided that they worked, whenever he believed that they worked. And so right from the beginning, just with many different types of, of erroneous beliefs, we find flaws that are starting to come out because he's saying a belief can't be true unless it works, but he's also admitting that, well, I have to believe that it worked. You might not believe that it worked. You might look at the results and say, no, that didn't work at all. You go back to our example of the, uh, of the person that was sick, and you say, well, the medicine made me well, and so I believe the medicine works. And somebody else says, well, at the same time, you were also doing this, you know, something. Maybe you were taking, uh, you know, we're talking this morning about vitamin C, so maybe you're taking a whole lot of vitamin C. And so I think the vitamin C made you well. And now, again, we come down to beliefs, which Mr. James says beliefs don't determine anything. The end result does. So, again, there's, there's errors right from the beginning of, of this philosophy. Uh, the, the other quote that I want to bring up from James, I don't have it on the board, is that his, he said ideas become true or beliefs become true just as far as they help us to get into a satisfactory relation with other parts of our experience. Now again, that's technical jargon. And, I, and on one level, I look at that and say, I don't really understand what you're saying here. But on another level, as I begin to think about this, I go, I completely understand this. And in fact, I've been making decisions like this. I've been making decisions like this my whole life. And what I call it is not pragmatism. I call it practicality. I am being practical. And we can all understand practicality and how to, to be practical um, whenever I'm, you know, I'm trying to, we, we try to save money. And I decide, you know what? I've got a vehicle out there that doesn't get very good gas mileage. So if I want to save money, um, maybe that's one place I can start is trying to save money and what it, and going towards fuel. So we would say, well, what's a practical way of doing that? It is not jumping in that Jeep, putting it in gear and driving with the pedal to the floor everywhere I go as fast as I can. Because maybe the mindset is, well, if I get there quicker, I use less gas. I'm going to tell you right now, that doesn't work in my Jeep. Um, it also doesn't save me, uh, save me any money when the police pulled me over going, you were going way over the speed limit. We go look and go, that is not a practical way to save money. And therefore, if we're thinking of pragmatism, and it obviously is very evidently true in this case, we would say that doesn't work, so it must be true that driving wide open does not save you money. In, at least in my vehicle. Um, some other people might, results may vary. So 
pragmatism on the surface, as I said, is simply looking at something and being practical about it. And we do this all the time in our lives. We do this every day. We do it with the water. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Leave the water running all day long. But then again, maybe if our pipes are going to freeze, we're going to leave it turned on a little bit. We are practical in our thinking. This is not necessarily a bad thing until pragmatism jumps into the realm of faith. And it starts to jump into the church. When pragmatism moved into the world of faith, this is where it began to, be, began to become a problem. Because when we determine truth based off of what works in our experience, then inevitably we are going to clash with Scripture. And I want to give you some examples of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 22. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 22, Paul notes the gospel doesn't always work. Now, I, want to, I, I will quali- quantify that statement in a minute. But let's read what he says first before I do. 1 Corinthians 1.22, he says, For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. This is what the Jews want a sign, the Greeks want wisdom. So what are we doing? We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. And so from one aspect, you look at that, and they're looking for a sign, and they're looking for wisdom, and what they're receiving is stumbling blocks and foolishness. Well, that's not working. Well, that's not what he says in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, he says it does work. He said it is the power of God to save those who believe. But we will note here that there are many instances, and we don't have to go to the Bible for that. We can look at our own lives. Many instances where on a surface level, you look at what we wanted to happen, and we realize it didn't happen. And so the, the end result, one might conclude, is, well, the gospel then didn't work. I want to give you another example of that from the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is Jesus, that's Mark. Matthew chapter 7 is Jesus re, uh, concludes his Sermon on the Mount. Notice what he says. He talks about a time where there's things that look like they are working. And he says, I want you to understand this doesn't equal truth. In verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. So again, the, we've looked at both the, we're looking at the negative side, and now we're flipping over to the positive side. In the negative aspect, we say if something doesn't work, it can't be true. And God, Paul is saying there are times when the gospel did not equate to people changing their lives. Are you going to then believe that the gospel doesn't work and is not true? Jesus says, well, let me give you the flip side of that. There are times when things seem like they are working. Does that make them true? Does that make them righteous? He says, absolutely not. There is a path that is wide and there's many people on it. And you look at that and say, well, it must be working. And he said, no, it's leading them to destruction. As we continue on, the narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. In fact, there are many people that look at that narrow way and go, that doesn't work for me. must not be true. Jesus is saying, no, it is true. Truth is not based then off of what works in my mind, in in, in my mentality. So even though Scripture makes that very clear, Jesus is making it very clear. It's not based off of the end result that determines truth. Still, we find that pragmatism, the idea that, that truth and knowledge and righteousness is based off of what is evident and what works, it is sweeped through the religious world. Church worship has evolved, uh, and what we call oftentimes contemporary church worship. Church worship has evolved off of what works. And instead of hearing sermons based in Scripture, and instead of seeing people uh, praying and, and singing together, what you get in, in contemporary worship is you get drama. We're going to, we're going to put on a show, and we're going to, we're going to do you know, action and, and comedy. It's all about how can I keep your attention, and how can I tell all the right jokes, and how can I give you... Uh, i got to make sure that I have these, these, uh, you know, th- these teachings that will change all of these aspects of your life that will make you want to come back. And, and, and we'll, you know, if you listen to this, you're going to become rich. And if you listen to that, you're never going to be sick. And, and even, even dance... A very popular thing in in the religious world now is interpretive dance to teach the Scripture. Why? Why do we see that? Why do we see rock bands? Why do we see all these things? Because we could continue to list them all day long. Why we see them is because they, in the minds of the religious world, work. And what I mean by that is they entertain and they draw crowds. People will 
come. I tell you what, right now, if we put a thing up on Facebook and tell everyone that on Sunday morning, Kyle Blevins is going to get up and do an interpretive dance to, uh, to explain the book of Romans, there will be people in this building that you have not seen before. I want to what on earth is that about? But is that really working? And does that equate to truth? See, that is pragmatism in a religious world. And this is the effect it has had on the church. And I do say, when I say that there, the effect it has had on the church, I know I've been using that word very loosely as I talked about this, but I'm wanting to boil it down now because I do believe it has had effect on the true church. It has had an effect on us. You think, well, we don't do any of those things. I'm not up here doing interpretive dance. I'm waving my arms around. We had, we had Phil Arnold here. He danced all over this stage as he was telling. That's not what we're doing. We're not doing those things. We hold to the truth. We hold to authority. We look to God's Word for, for why we do what we do. And, and, and we, look, we, we let that set the truth. It's not about what works. Surely this can't be talking about me. But have you ever heard someone say, well, you know, I used to go to such and such church. I used to go here. I used to go there. But it really didn't work for me. And we, we have usually very very sound reasons for that. You know, maybe the, 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 the kids there weren't the same age as my kids. There was no kids there that were my kids' age. And so that, it just didn't work for me. Sometimes you get reasons like, well, the, the preaching there was not very good. I didn't like the preaching. I didn't like the, the long-windedness of that preacher. I didn't like the way that he, that he presented the lesson. I didn't like the singing. I didn't like... So we just list all these things. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. It didn't work for me. What we find is we're becoming very consumeristic in our mindset. That's a very American way of thinking. We, we do that with our restaurants. I'm, I, I do not like to go to Chewy's. <laughs> There's not going to find me there very often. Look at that go, you know what? Chewy's doesn't work for me. And it's really more so it doesn't work for many of my family members, but because of that, it doesn't work for me. And so we're not going to be there. Well, that has made its way into the church as well. And it's, it's bordering on a very pragmatic faith. If it works for me, I will determine that it's true for me that I should be there. And we look at that maybe and go, well, wait a minute. We are called to... To, as, as parents, we're called to look at our children and say, well, I've got a responsibility to this child. And I've got to raise this child up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And one thing that could harm that, one thing that could hinder that, is a place where there are absolutely no children. And that, that, an argument very well could be made for that. We might even look and say, you know what, if I'm not being fed at a congregation, maybe I'm in danger of not learning the truth. And so I need to find a place that I will. We can, we can look at these things and say, well, this seems pretty innocent that this is... The, the, this mindset of just, I'm going to choose the church that works for me, but I want to take you to the next logical step. The next logical step in this is when we say, all right, I've found the church that works for me. What am I going to start doing? I'm going to start trying to bring other people to this church, and I'm going to teach them how that church works for them. Now, wait a minute now. That might work for a little bit, because I'm going to probably go to people that are a little bit like me. You know, the people that I see at, at the preschool or at the, at the elementary school. I drop my kids off, my friends in the, in the PTA or at the, the school the, you know, community uh, activities, the school activities that I go to. I'm going to invite them, and they've got kids that are my kids' age, and, and so there's going to be some things they're doing. But then I'm going to meet someone who's not like me. And maybe I'm going to meet someone that's got real, real problems. Or meet someone that has been dealing with difficult things. Somebody that's been married multiple times because of divorce. Someone who's struggling with drug addiction. Someone who is, is, is dealing with just a, a life that is dominated by lust. And i got to find a way to show them that this church can work for you. Instead of, you need to work for God. You need to work and you need to live for Christ. And the very, very easy temptation then is to say, well, if I'm going to teach them and it works for them, I've got to find a way to present the truth in a manner that's very effective or a manner that works and start trying to determine that for myself. And all too often what that lends to is people that say, well, you know what? I've never seen someone respond when I go to them and say, you know, in, Matthew, in Mark 9, Jesus talks about 
marriage and divorce, and we need to talk about that. I've never seen someone respond well, well when I say, hey, I, I know that you really love to go and to, to drink your wine and, and, and to go out to bars and spend time with your friends. I know you love that, but the, the gospel is calling you away from that, to, to put those things away. I've never really seen people go, yeah, you know what? I'm going to end this relationship that's adulterous. I'm going to leave these vices behind that, that aren't markers of a Christian life. I'm going to stop all that and just start doing what the Bible says. I've not seen that happen a lot. So maybe I won't talk about those things. And I'll find some other way to try and bring people into the building and get people into pews because that's the end goal, isn't it? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to fill the building. Oh, wait a minute. We're right there with the denominations now if that's where our end goal is. If our end goal is to just get people in these pews, to just put people even, what's this, just to get people in the water. If my end goal is just to baptize somebody, then I've missed the point. The end goal is not just to fill this building with souls. The end goal is to make people in, into a right relationship with God. To call people out of the darkness of the world into light and into holy living and into righteousness. And I want you to think about how Jesus described that. Jesus described that in Luke 9 and verse 23 when He said, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Me. You remember that? When He says that, do you remember what He's just got through telling them? He's just got through telling them, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to give up my life and now He's telling them, if you're going to come to the Father, if you want to follow Me, you need to deny yourself and you need to take up your cross. And what He's saying is you're going to suffer. Following after Me is a decision to suffer. And what is suffering? Suffering is the ultimate picture of things not working. You ever see somebody that's just... Maybe you're, maybe you're suffering with something. Something's just going really, really wrong, feels like, in your life. And, and you just look around at your circumstances and you go, this isn't working. This is not working. You know, you, I had the mentality once. That I said, I'm going to, I had a buddy that had a Jeep. I said, you know what, I can fix that Jeep. Hadn't ran in like 10 years for some reason. I'd never worked on a vehicle that even had a carburetor. But I went, I could fix that Jeep. And it took me about two weeks of, of, of busted knuckles and, and all sorts of problems to go, this isn't working. There is something wrong here. Well, as we found out, it, it was working. There were things that were going right, but I couldn't see that because all I could see was this one problem that stood in my way. I'd fixed several other things, but there was one issue that I couldn't get over. I couldn't see that the things were working. Suffering is a picture of things. It just looks like they're not working. Jesus does not. Why is He foolishness to the Jews? Or to the Greeks? Why is He a stumbling block to the Jews? It doesn't look like He worked. Here's your great leader that came to, to, to become the King, the Messiah, and the Romans killed Him. That doesn't appear to work. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to suffering. See, following after Jesus doesn't seem very pragmatic. It doesn't seem very practical or reasonable. And yet Jesus says that's the only way to come to the Father. And so if that's the case, I hope we can see then the very real danger that pragmatism can, can, can create for the church. How it affects our thinking. When I start looking at things and saying, well... That doesn't seem like it's worked in the past, so I'm not sure that's really what I need to be doing. I'm not sure that that's, the, that, that that's what God really wants. You see, that affects the church, but it also affects the community. Because there are so many churches out there that are looking at this and saying, okay, let's go to, let's go to marketing. Let's go to these great corporations and say, how, Pepsi, how did you get so many people to buy your drink? How do you do that? And they give them, well, these are things that we did. And the churches are going, well, we're going to start doing those too. We're going to start doing that too. To try to get people to come. And you know what? That is lent. That is lent to our society increasingly coming to the church and then asking this question. What can you do for me? 
What can the church do for me? What can you offer me? And if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work for me, if it doesn't provide me with what I'm looking for, then it probably isn't true. That's the view of the world. The flip side of that is if it does work, if I deem that this, is, that this has been uh, uh, profitable to me, then I'm going to decide that's true. And that's why you have so many people that, that come up in a denominational world and they say there is no way that this could be wrong because look at how happy I am. Look at how good my life has gotten. And maybe we've never, never even heard that Jesus is not calling us to happiness. Now I want to come back to that in a minute because I, 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 need, to, I need to make sure that we understand what I just said. But what Jesus is calling us to is to suffering. Following after Him. I want to give you one more quote by William James. And I think this truly gets to the heart of the problem with pragmatism. He said, What is true of it seems from first to last to be largely a matter of our own creation. See, that's the problem with pragmatism. And Mr. James was honest enough to admit that. Pragmatism equates man with being his own source of truth. I get to decide. I get to be the one that says this is true and this is false. Sounds a lot like Adam and Eve saying, I get to decide this is right and this is wrong. So I hope that we see then, while this is a problem today, it's not a new problem. In fact, it's not even a new problem in the church. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 because what we're going to find is Paul is not pragmatic in his thinking um, at all, but yet the, the, the opportunity is there. The opportunity is there for him to be so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, read verse 8 with me. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure of strength so that we despaired even of life. What is Paul acknowledging here? In 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8, Paul is acknowledging my life has been marked by suffering. It has been hard. He has suffered extremely in his service to God. In fact, as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians right now, he's telling them part of that suffering is because of you. Because of the things that they had done. He writes in chapter 2 that he has had this sorrowful or very painful visit with them. I came to you and it, and it hurt. And likely that visit happens between these two letters. Between chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 Corinthians. But then he also tells them, I even wrote you a letter and I wrote that letter in anguish. I wrote that letter in tears because these people have been hurting him. They've made accusations against him saying, you're, you're not telling the truth, Paul. You're a liar. We, we, don't think, we think that you've been trying to deceive us. They've been saying, you look, you look at all the suffering in your life. There's no reason for us to, to believe you. There's no reason, reason for us to follow you. They've been filled with complaints. And not only is, is these accusations being made against him and these complaints being raised against him, but during this time, he's still ministering to other churches. He's still ministering to the lost and to the Gentiles. And, and he is facing great trials in that. And nearly every place that he goes to, he deals with people that want to kill him. And it's gotten so bad that it seems, we read there, he says, we despaired even of life. We wished for death. In fact, first, uh, Philippians, Philippians 1 and verse 23. What does he say there? He says, I am hard pressed between living and dying. Are you hard pressed? between living and dying in your life today? I th that, that is an incredibly bold statement. And it's not a statement that I can, I can make very easily. I'm pretty partial to living myself at this point in my life. I, it's not a hard decision. If someone comes to me and says, you want to die today or do you want to live? I'm, I'm going to choose live pretty easily over top of dying. Paul says the life that I live for Christ has caused me to be hard-pressed as to whether or not I want to continue living it. In fact, we would look at it and say, Paul, your life's not working out too well. Things are not going good. So why did Paul continue? 
He's faced extreme hardships. He's been receiving this from the people that he's ministering to. He's, he's questioning whether or not he should even continue living. It seems very illogical. It seems very unreasonable for Paul to continue enduring all of this. Why would you continue to suffer? Why would you not just give up on the Corinthians? Why not? Why not even take one of your own uh, words from you know, biblical terms and say, you know what? I'm casting pearls before swine. Why do I keep doing this? Why don't I just brush the dust from my feet and move on? Why don't I quit? The reason why is because he does not have a pragmatic view of life, but he does have a very reasonable view of who God is. And that is a huge difference. Continue reading verses 9 through 11. Listen to what he says. He says, yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that He will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Now what I want us to note first is then the answer to pragmatism. See, the... This was, has been the case in the past. The answer to pragmatism, which again says, we got to look out and say, well, what works? What works? You know what works? Building a gymnasium works. It brings people in. You know what works? Having, having great big dinners and, and all sorts of these events. These things work. So let's, let's do those things. The answer to that in the past has been, let's throw out all practicality whatsoever and just focus on theology. We don't need any of that. We just need the Bible, and that's all we're going to do is study the Bible. Well... I would agree with that statement, but what I want us to see is Paul's answer is not to completely throw out practicality. He doesn't say, well, I'm just going to throw out all reason whatsoever and blindly follow what I've been told to follow. No, in fact, he does just the opposite. He says, I'm going to give you the reason, which means he has reasoned amongst himself. He has thought about this and he has weighed this out. And he says, here's the reason. The answer to pragmatism is not abandonment of practicality. It is embracing reason and who is in control. Who is it that actually gets the right to say this is truth? And who is it that actually gets the right to say this does work? The purpose, Paul says, for all of this suffering, for what looks like it's not working, the purpose that I'm going through all this is to remove our trust in ourselves. And this afternoon, we're going to talk more about that. About a specific time in Paul's life when this happened, and as, Paul, as his, his buddy Luke that's recording this notes, all hope was lost in our lives. Paul, Paul's going to say there's a reason that we go through these things. It's to take away our trust in ourselves and place it solely on the person that is de deserving of this, and that is God. Pragmatic faith would say, you know what, this doesn't make sense to me. I keep doing the same thing over and over again. I keep going from town to town, and I tell people about this Jesus, the Christ from Nazareth, that He was the Son of God, and that yes, He, he came to this world, and He lived a perfect life, and He died on the cross that they might be freed from their sins, and so they should leave their, their, their traditions they should, they, they, they should abandon the traditions of the rabbis and they should turn their hearts back to God and, and that is found today in following His Son. And I go to others and I say, your belief in all of these other gods that you follow after, while, while I understand that you're very religious, you need to see the one true God that is, that is over top of heaven and earth and you need to follow Him. And when I do that, you know what they do? They try to kill me. And a very pragmatic faith says, you know what? The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again, expecting different results. This is insane. This isn't working. I'm going to try something different. But that is not the mindset of Paul. Paul reveals here that through all of this, all of this suffering and all of these things that just don't seem to be working, he reasons, I'm going to continue to do this I'm going to continue to be patient. I'm going to continue to suffer and to be ridiculed. I'm even going to continue to be persecuted because I know in the end the God that I serve. And I know that God can deliver me. And that's his point in Philippians. His point is, you know what? Maybe that deliverance comes today. Maybe all of this suffering goes away, and in that case, I continue to stay here and I continue to preach the Gospel and I continue to try to bring people to the Father. 
but maybe it doesn't. Maybe today is the day that I am killed. Then I go to be with Christ. Either way, I'm going to be delivered. I am in the hands of a God that can deliver me. And that means Paul's faith wasn't focused on what's happening around him. It wasn't focused on his hardships. It wasn't focused on his trials. He looked at everything and he said, how does this equate to the glorification and magnification of God before a people who really, really need Him? And that's where pragmatic faith differs from biblical faith. See, pragmatic faith says, how can this change my life? Versus how does my faith magnify God in my life and in the life of others? See, too many today have a faith that says, make my life more pleasing. If it makes my marriage better, then it must be true. There are a lot of things that in the eyes of the world would make their marriage better. It doesn't make it true. If it makes me happier, it must be true. If I get to do what I want to do, if I find success in my business, if I get a nice house and a nice car and everything, it seems like it's working for me, that's the religion for me. The danger with that religion is that religion never calls me to, to be, lead a holy life. That religion doesn't tell me to control my sexual lusts and desires. That religion doesn't tell me that I can't lose myself in drunkenness. That religion doesn't tell me I can't be filled with rage and hate. I can do all the things from that religion because my faith says the ultimate goal in my life is my personal happiness. And now I want to come back to that, that statement. Does God want us to be happy? That's the question that people ask me all the time. Heard this question as someone, doesn't God want me to be happy? You go and talk with someone about a problem they're facing in their life, and, and here's the answer, and the answer doesn't seem like it's gonna make me, does it? That's like gonna be hard. Doesn't God want me to be happy in my marriage? My answer to that over and over again is yes. Yes, he does. Resoundingly, yes, for certain he wants you to be happy, but you have to believe that God knows better than you what true happiness looks like. And He has chosen to reveal it to us through holiness. The path to happiness doesn't lie in meeting the fleeting pleasures of this life. It lies in the, the assertion of holiness from Christ looking for the pleasures of a life in paradise with God in, in eternity. And that's exactly what the psalmist says in Psalm 1. That's his conclusion. Is blessed is the man, happy is the man who delights in the law of the Lord. He goes on to say, this guy, yes, yeah, you delight in the law of the Lord, that means you're going to have to cut a lot of things out of your life. You don't get, you're not going and, and worshiping all of these idols, and you don't, you're not going to covet your neighbor's wife, and you're not going to lie, you're going to tell the truth, and even if that is a hard thing to do, you're going to do it, but you're going to be happy when you do that. You're going to be blessed when you do that. And you will, he, he goes on to say, you're going to be fruitful, you're going to be prosperous, you are going to be secure and firm and grounded. Your way is known by the Lord. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say that person will never face trials. You know, if you're telling the truth, there are going to be times when that brings a trial into your life. Especially if you've done something that you want to hide, but you're, you need to tell the truth. It's going to be hard. You are going to face trials. He doesn't say, you know what, this person is always going to be successful and succeed in everything they do. He says in their way they will be fruitful and they will prosper. Have you ever prospered in failure? I know I have. Things have went the complete opposite of the way that I expected them to go. It has to go this way or it's a failure. And it goes the exact opposite. And I realize that was much better than where I thought it needed to go. In my infinite wisdom, I was completely wrong. But yet I still prospered in failure. And that brings up to me the fact that sometimes we judge things as working, as successful, as, as prosperous based on immediate success. And if we're doing that and that dictates our faith, we've got a problem. And I do believe that that includes a large percentage of Christians today. People who say, I follow Christ, but on my terms. On terms that will lead to my happiness. And so I want to give you one more subset of this. One more subset of this view. Because there's some people that say, yes, you know what? I, I really enjoy my alcohol. 
And so I, I, I don't want to follow your all's teaching because your all's teaching says I have to quit drinking alcohol. I can't get drunk anymore, so I don't want to do that. But there's this church over here that says, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. As long as you do this, this, and this, then you can still get drunk. Well, that, that makes me happy, so I'll go follow them. I think that's a very easy target. That's low-hanging fruit for us to put in. Well, that's wrong. You know a harder one? As people will say, you know what? I want, I want to be holy. And I want other people to be holy too. But I'm afraid that if I speak the truth, it's going to place a stumbling block in that way. And so I need to try to find a way to massage that truth a little bit so that they can, they can come to the truth slowly and on their terms. And then eventually we will morph them into what God wants them to be. Now, I'm not saying for a minute that, that we don't recognize that there is such a thing as babes in Christ. And, and, and certainly there are. But I want to give you a picture of that in the Bible. People that had the very opportunity to do that. To say, you look, these things are hard right now. And we just take an easier path. Who knows? Maybe the gospel will spread even more. Because if we take too hard a path, not only are people not going to come, we're all going to die. And then who's left? Who's left to spread the good news? Over in Revelation chapter 2, in verse 7, as Jesus writes these letters, seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. And I understand these seven letters, they have historical context. And I don't want to rip them out of that context. We also need to realize these letters have wide-reaching spiritual messages. And in all seven letters, the word overcome is used repeatedly. Repeatedly. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Jesus writes to the church there, telling them to overcome. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give him to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of paradise. In verse 11, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. In verse 17, He says to him, in the middle of that verse, To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Over and over and over again. Verse 26, He who overcomes and keeps My works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Every one of these verses, over again, He says, I want you to overcome. And we might say, why? Why does He keep saying that? Why does He keep telling them that? Well, who is He speaking to? He's speaking to people who have fallen out of love with God. He's speaking to people who are facing severe persecution. Not, not just, well, you know, I might not get a job. I might lose my business. No, I might lose my life. I might lose my family. I might lose my ability to buy food and, and to take care of them. This is going to possibly kill me. He's writing to people who have compromised with a religious world around them. And said, we'll, we'll take some of your teachings in with our teachings. They've become corrupted by immorality. They've become apathetic. They appear like they're alive, but on the inside, they're dead. There's no faith and no love in them. They've dwelt in the constant presence of Satan who is tempting them to turn from their way. And many of them have become reliant not on God, but upon themselves, on their wealth, on their abilities. I will get myself out of this situation. And God says, that makes you lukewarm before me. You see, they lived in a world that said, you know what, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be who you want to be. And you can worship whoever you want to worship, however you want to worship Him. Does that world sound familiar? We write, oh, well, I wish we had the good old days. The preacher was right nothing new under the sun. The world that we live in today was not somehow drastically different from the world that, that these Christians lived in. They dealt with the same things. And yet in this world, they said you can do whatever you want, but you have to, you have to worship the emperor. The emperor's deity, you must worship. And as long as you do that, I don't care what else you do. You do whatever you want to do. You can worship anything for all I care, but you've got to worship the emperor. If you don't, we're going to kill you. That's when Jesus calls them to overcome. That's the backdrop, uh, the historical context of these letters. And what that means then, when He says overcome, is whenever someone comes to you and says, do you believe there's only one true God? And all other, these, these all other, you know, look at our, our, our pantheon, and look at all of these other gods that we have. You tell me all of these are fake? That means you answer yes to that. You say Absolutely. And that also means that you're answering to them, your emperor is a liar. 
And those who are following Him like you have belief based totally on a lie. That's a hard thing to say. It'd be a whole lot easier, it seems like, if we said, well, maybe. But we can, we can agree to disagree on these things. And that certainly would seem like it would be easier to accept. And you say, no, you overcome, which means you stand for the truth. It also means that when someone says, well, listen, okay, you don't believe that my emperor is, the, is, is a god, but you're going to still have to burn incense to him. You've got to do that. If you don't believe, that's one thing, but, but you, you have to burn incense to him. You have to worship him as a god. It means in that situation, when Jesus says you overcome, he's saying you answer, I can't. I can't do that because there's only one true God. And, and that one true God has said that He, he has all power and, and His Son is my King and I obey Him. And I have to obey Him even before you or before the emperor. And I want to tell you, that's exactly what the first century Christians are facing. And when their answer was, no, I'm not going to do that, they were met with extreme persecution such as the 40 Roman Christian soldiers. In 320 A.D., 40 Roman soldiers who have adopted Christianity, they have been brought in to the, to the kingdom of God, but they are employed by Rome. They are, they are bound in this relationship they have with the, with the Roman army. And they're going into battle, and they get news from their leaders, you have to burn incense before this battle. Go burn incense to the emperor before we go into battle. These 40 Christian soldiers said, no, we can't do that. If we do that, we are violating our king. We are defiling ourselves before our king. We will not burn incense to, to the emperor. And so what was the conclusion to that? They were, they were whipped. The flesh was removed from their backs. Hooks were stuck into their sides and pulled until they ripped out. And they still said, no, I'm not going to burn incense. So they were stripped naked and placed on a frozen pond, but they weren't just left there. They put a, a warm bath on the edge of this pond and said, the first one of you, any one of you, that denies your faith, comes and burns the incense, here's your, here's your relief. You don't have to suffer this. Look around you. It's not working. Your God has abandoned you. You're freezing to death. Do you know how many people that day changed their conviction? You might think zero. The answer is one. And the answer is so powerful to me. Because we look at it and we say, doing the hard things at the hard times, saying the hard things, that doesn't always work. We need to try and maybe, maybe water this down a little bit because at least people have the opportunity to come in and hear the truth. These men didn't water anything down. They did the hard things and the person who changed their heart was not out on that lake. Was one of the men standing by the bath. History records he stripped himself in seeing the persecution that these men were willing to endure for their God and said that God must be the one true God. And he joined them in their deaths on that lake. You see, why did Jesus say overcome? To the world, we look at it and say, that doesn't work. God says, yes, it does. It does work. You don't see it. Maybe. We don't see it when we look at our lives, we look at our circumstances around and say, well, pragmatism says this isn't working. We've been trying this, we've been trying this for how long? This doesn't seem to be working. We don't seem to be growing. And God says, quit basing it off of what's going on around you and base it off of me. Look at me and realize who I am. That is the danger. The danger of pragmatic faith is a faith that makes sense to me. If I think it works, then I believe it. How many Christians, how many Christians today would go, you know what, I'll just bend that knee to Caesar and burn a little bit of incense and make him happy because after all, if we all die, who's going to spread the gospel? But that's not what happened. Jesus urged the church to overcome. Many of them, many of them said this is unreasonable. Many of them turned from the faith. But many also chose to follow Christ in suffering and to overcome and to conquer, as maybe the, as your tra other translations say. They chose to even die for their faith. And what we see in history is the response to this was not the gospel as some whimpering little flame that, that was snuffed out by Satan. It was lit ablaze. The, the, 
the, the leaders of that day, when Paul comes, they say, you all turn the world on its ear. You have turned the world upside down with something that doesn't seem to be working. And it's because the message that we believe is by and large a very unreasonable message. Why would the creator of this world, why would God send His own Son to die for His creation? But He did. He sent Him to die so that we could be saved from our sins. He sent Him so that He could bring His kingdom into this world and bring us into that kingdom and one day be saved with Him to reside in paradise for eternity. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to me why He would do that. But I believe it because I believe in the power of God that raised Him from the dead. That He will raise me from the dead even when things don't seem like they're working out around me. If I am obedient to Him and if I follow in His ways and trust that His way is the true way. How do we answer this problem today? That's how we answer this problem. I already told you, the answer is not throwing away reason and practicality. So many times people say, well, the the answer to this is we just throw out everything and say we're only going to study the Bible. We're only going to talk about the Bible. And that's all we're ever going to do is the Bible. And I'm 100% for that. But sometimes that causes us to leave out real world application. You see, Jesus gave us the answer to pragmatism. When He said, you teach the Word, and you apply it in your lives, and you teach other people to do that as well. He called it the Great Commission, and He used the word discipleship. He said, theology. Theology is just a study of God. Who God is. What has God done? What does God desire of me? But theology plus application. Let's say, now that I know who God is, and I know what He wants, and I'm following after Him, I've become a disciple. And Jesus said, that's what I want. And you might look at it and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus says it does make sense. And it works. And over and over again, through God's Word and through history, we find that that is absolutely the case. It might seem reasonable to water down God's laws. It might seem reasonable to change what God has said about the church. Because maybe that will lead more people to showing up for a service or for a study. That might seem pragmatic. But it does not open the door for the gospel to change their lives. What it does is it changes the gospel. It changes the gospel into what I want it to be and what they want it to be. And you know what often happens when that occurs? The next generation manipulates it even further. And it continues and it continues. Instead, we need to be people who reason in the Scriptures. Who is God? What is, why is He worthy to be followed? What is His will for my lives? And when we apply that in our lives, we start living out what we've studied. The world, they might, not look, they might look at that and seem like, not sure if that really works, but in the eyes of God and the eyes of history, we see it does. We must be reasonable in our faith, yes. But reasoning in our faith means we never forget who God is. We never forget His Word. We never forget His Son, Jesus, and that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And if we want to come to the Father, we have to do it through Him, not through my way. I pray that we never here become guilty of forcing God into our faith, but rather force ourselves into submission to Him. And if there's something we can do this, after, this morning to assist you in that, to assist you in turning from your way and your dependence upon yourself and reliance upon who you are and your desire that this works and this is what I'm going to do, to God's way. Say, I will follow after Him. If we can help you and assist you in that in any way, won't you please come forward as we stand and as we sing.